Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey Fluorescent Hacker Unicorn Knockrainer. What? Fluorescent <laughs> Hacker Unicorn? Okay. My hat? <laughs> oh, I did not notice that. Oh, I thought it was a horse. I thought it was like a Polo Ralph Lauren thing, not a My Little Ponies thing. Yeah, but it's fluorescent, so you may not see it, but there's like this rainbow effect on it. Adorable. Uh, yeah. On today's episode, we'll be discussing, actually, I guess three topics related to the U.S. government. First one being a DOJ takedown of a major ransomware organization, followed up by two separate publications from our friends at CISA. Uh, one about uh, latest threat trends targeting, at least government for now, organizations. And then another with some guidance for folks in public education. Uh, with that, let's go and uh, ride our way in. On the Rainbow Unicorn. So let's start this week uh, with a news story out of what would have been last Thursday as you're listening to this, where the Department of Justice announced they had successfully seized the Hive ransomware operation as a part of a multi-month operation dating back to July 2022. So the operation ultimately led to them taking over the Tor websites, uh, all communications, all documentation, and they also, for a period extended period of time, had access to all of the decryption keys too for Hive victims. Uh, so the court order that backed up this operation in the Central District of uh, California states the FBI was able to provide decryption keys for 336 victims, sometimes within hours of encryption, and ultimately saving what could have been $130 million in ransom payments. So pause there before continuing. That's kind of nuts. Uh, so we've known historically that in FBI's like hack back activities, that they do tend to lie and hiding for a bit while in systems. It's not like they go in and like immediately take down the servers or immediately disrupt it like they'll sit there for a bit in the case of like dark web marketplaces sometimes they'll even continue running them for a few months just to collect more information so it sounds like through their access they were able to grab decryption keys as they were flying around and relatively close to immediately hand them off to victims that's kind of cool to see yeah that's the best part about this release i mean later on we'll talk about if it's gone forever which we may have different opinions on but who you know even if these threat actors come back saving people money from ransomware is fantastic yeah uh so bit of background on hive they started back in june of 2021 so relatively fresh i guess they're not one of the more longer lived ones at least under this name because uh, they started shortly after Conti shut down operations. So Conti used to be a really prolific Russian-based ransomware operation. And because of the the timings of them coming up and Conti going down, it's widely believed that they're probably at least affiliated with Conti and could even have some of their former members in it. Because as with most ransomware operations, they don't tend to get held accountable for their act actions if they are in some of these foreign countries. Um, so a member of our threat lab team actually is running a project where they're tracking just, I mean, it's pretty much every ransomware organization out there. And so we've been looking at uh, Hive for a while and some of the stats we pulled, we were tracking 220 victims on their extortion page. 
which comparison, the FBI court order said there were 1,500 targeted victims worldwide. It wasn't clear if they were targeted and successful or if those were entirely successful victims or whatnot. Um, but it's possible that 15% then, the ones the that did end up on the extortion page, uh, were at least able to avoid exfiltration or they didn't pay the ransom. And that's why their data ended up on the uh, their equivalent of the, the happy blog. Um, majority of the victims were in the U.S. and a pretty widespread across a whole bunch of different industries from public to private finance to I think I even saw like telecommunications in there, too. Uh, they operated entirely as a ransomware as a service model with a 80 to 20 percent split. So the affiliate that licensed out, for lack of a better word, the ransomware would get 80 percent of all extortions, while Hive would bring in 20 percent. Um, and last little interesting bit from the court order. So they identified uh, for their infrastructure, two of the servers were actually located in Los Angeles. And uh, two backup ones were in the, in the Netherlands. And I suppose this is probably why it went through the central district of uh, California for the court order since the servers were in L.A. I guess pause there for a second. Like you tend to think with threat actors, I mean, tend to incorrectly think with threat actors that, oh, all their traffic's going to originate from Russia or China or whatever. The reality is with like virtual cloud providers and uh, anonymous or anonymized payments or even just stolen payment card information, it's really easy for someone to anonymously set up a server in any location in the world that they want. And before um, then, there's proxies, VPN that you could, no matter where the actual server was, you could redirect through all kinds of different regions before you got there. So, yep. So while there may be some value to blocking entire countries that you don't do business with at a geolocation level, it's not going to be effective against like some of these. I, it's, I hate to even call this sophisticated, like even some of these relatively basic attacks. I, I personally think geoblocking is dumb. <laughs> I for that very reason, it's it's trivial to get past for a even a, a normal criminal attacker is not always going to be have things in their country. And that said, there's really not any country where you may not have a cut. You know, it's there's no clean borders on the internet other than maybe the Great Firewall of China, so to speak. Uh, you know, Chinese sites live all over. U.S. sites will have servers all over. U.S. companies will have servers in other countries. So I personally, we, we have geolocation in our products because people request it. But I think the idea of it being really that effective is, is dumb in my personal opinion. That's fair. Uh, so let's go back to the, uh, the takedown. So if you go to Hive's dark web websites right now, you're greeted with a big old FBI has seized this domain. Also translated to uh, Russian, if you are coming from a location that speaks that, which was a kind of the uh, Department of Justice. But it, it's not like they went and arrested a bunch of people behind this. All they did was they took down their current existing infrastructure, which sounds like it was just a handful of servers. I mean, it's good. Don't get me wrong. Like they were able to save victims a lot of money, but this is definitely not a permanent action. Yeah. Although for all we know, landscape. it may even be a permanent action in the future for the group because they took down the servers and, and as we talked about, got money back right away. But I bet you the access they got to get to those servers gave them a lot of new forensical evidence 
that might help them actually find the threat actors behind putting those servers up. So I wonder, this is purely speculation, Mark, but I wonder if like in four months time, you know, you take down the CNC right away because of bad stuff, but you gather all the evidence during that, you know, four months to half a year later, will a attorney make a case and suddenly we see indictments against threat actors. So yeah, I agree. Haven't found people yet, but could come back. Even indictments aren't always the uh, the end all be all for this. Like, yes, it is nice when our Department of Justice is able to at least name individuals, specific individuals behind cyber threat activity. And even better when they arrest. Correct. But uh, I mean, and also it does prevent them from leaving their home country because as soon as they go to a friendly country, they're going to get picked up. But I mean, the reality is like if these are associated with Conti, like they're inside Russia and Russia is not exactly on friendly terms with us and going to extradite some of their own to the U.S. to oh, face absolutely justice. Not. Yeah. But flip side, their country is currently at war and they will be trapped there until the end of time. So <laughs> it's not exactly the best place to be stuck, I suppose. I will say the one thing, whether or not they catch the threat actors or not, or at least indict them, I wouldn't consider the technical malware hive to be gone. As we've said many times in the past, you know, sometimes uh, sources being traded on the underground or sold. And even if a source isn't traded, if the binaries or maybe some of the frameworks that the affiliates get still exist, often that's used to make very similar variants. So... I wouldn't not count Hive out as a technical threat yet, uh, but still great news from the FBI. Good job. And that's a good point. Like they took down the infrastructure for like delivering it and facilitating payments and communications. But it's not like Hive was developed on like a public GitHub repository that the FBI nuked into the sun. Like they still have access to all their source code. All they have to do is throw a new name on it, get a couple new servers, and they're potentially back online right then and there. Exactly. But... You know, them being down and them being a prolific ransomware variant up until last week, it does at least buy a little bit of breathing room over the next couple of weeks, which is good. Like it is a net benefit and it is a win for the Department of Justice, even if it isn't a, you know, end all killing them off for good. Um, so uh, moving on, though, uh, also last week, the uh CISA, NSA, and MSISAC, which stands for Multi-State Information Sharing and Analysis Center, uh, released a joint advisory about the malicious use of legitimate remote monitoring and management tools, or RMM software. Uh, so in October 2022, CISA identified a widespread cyber campaign, they said, involving the malicious use of legitimate RMM software. Uh, specifically, threat actors sent phishing emails that led to the download of legitimate software like Screen Connect, which is now ConnectWise Control, and AnyDesk, uh, which they then used in a refund scam scheme to steal money from victims' bank accounts. So we'll get to refund scams in a second because it was actually that the title of it was relatively new to me, even if the concept is something that you've seen, I've seen floated around for a while. Um, but before that, let's get into a bit of the weeds for the the report because it's actually kind of interesting. Uh, so we've talked about it a few times on the podcast, but CISA maintains this uh, like government-wide intrusion detection system called Einstein. Basically, every federal civilian executive branch has this deployed within their organizations, and CISA is proactively monitoring it. 
And then regularly, they will go back and do retroactive threat hunting activities as well, too. So in October of 2022, CISA used a third party to conduct a retrospective analysis of Einstein and identified what they said was malicious activity on two FCEB, so Federal Civilian Executive Branch uh, Networks. First off in June 2022, there was a phishing email containing a phone number sent to an FCEB's employee's government email address. That employee called the phone number, uh, which led them to visit a malicious domain called myhelpcare.online. And then in September 2022, there was bidirectional traffic from an FCEB network to myhelpcare.cc. Yeah, By the way, not, not a badly named, uh, ho hopefully no. the non-standard, you know, root level TLD would uh, online and CC aren't very common places, but they picked a good domain. You know, that shows a difference between getting closer to spear phishing versus phishing by being smart. It was smart clearly about... a good lure, like it worked. And yeah. um, like, yes, to you and me and other technical folks, like we'll immediately be like, eh, that seems a little sketchy, but to random accountant at some state government branch like they if they haven't been specifically trained on it yeah it, this would be a really good domain to use um so further analysis they found uh, related activity on many other fceb networks and they believe it was related to a malicious typo squatting uh activity reported by the company called silent push back in october of 2022. Uh, so back then in that report silent push talked about um, typo squatting for like Geek Squad and other technical support websites where they would try and trick victims into visiting the site, calling up a help desk, and then ultimately installing similar tools. Uh, a few more details. The phishing emails included either a first stage malicious domain or a direct uh, direction for the recipient to call the cyber criminals who then convinced them to visit that first stage domain. Uh, one of the screenshots they shared, it was a Geek Squad subscription re renewal, basically saying, we're about to charge you $600. If you did not approve this and you think it's fraudulent, call this phone number right here immediately. Uh, once you visit that first stage malicious domain, it triggers a download of a executable. That executable connects to a second stage malicious domain and downloads the actual RMM software. And then last bit of interesting tidbits. Uh, that RMM software, it didn't actually install it on the hosts. Instead, it ran as a self-contained portable executable uh, configured to connect back to the attacker's RMM server. few reasons for that. So portable executables, they launch within the user's context without installation, which means they also don't require admin privileges. Uh, they can circumvent controls that prevent software installations specifically. And they can still leverage local user rights to attack other vulnerable machines within the same local network. Um, after downloading the RMM, the threat actors initiated this refund scam, which basically was they would trick the victim into opening up their bank account. Uh, through the RMM software, they were able to manipulate the HTML on the page to make it look like they had a, um, a, a fake refund of excess money sent into their account. And then they would instruct that recipient to refund that excess amount back to the scammer, which because that they fictitiously inserted that record into their account, the reality is that money wasn't there and the victim was just sending their own money straight to the attacker. Now, it's a pretty common type of scam. You see it a lot with like Craigslist scams where they overpay for an item and then say, oh, just send me back the uh, withdraw the money and send it back. And then four days later when the check bounces, 
uh, you lose whatever money you sent over. Um, they noted that even though that this attack was financially motivated, uh, their concern is that it could very easily spread to other types of attacks too. Uh, really e easily could spread to other malicious activity, which is why they put it as alert. So that was the bulk of it. There's some tips we'll get into in a second, but I I think this style of attack isn't new. Like we've seen with like go to support and go to like that sort of stuff. A lot of uh, fake or malicious call centers outside the United States will instruct people to do that and then trick them into giving up like hundreds of dollars for fake uh, anti-malware services or uh, install like adware on their machines. But using RMM tools is another bit of a step up in a similar direction though. And it makes sense. Like these are, they're legitimate tools. Yeah, I totally agree. I think you could see, you know, the fact that they're using the RMM tools that maybe uh, service providers would use might make it easier to target clients that use a service provider and are used to maybe a support rep wanting to use an RMM tool or actually, you know, messing with the service providers themselves. Anyways, like you say, it's not entirely new at all, uh, but definitely interesting. Yeah, and because like you just said, it makes sense because most anti-malware isn't going to block like any desk or connect wise because it is legitimate software and it's got all the tools that an adversary would need in order yeah. to go against that endpoint. And yes, they used it right now to just steal money out of bank accounts, but in the future they could use it as that kind of foothold to gain a backdoor into the network and then install ransomware or exfiltrate more sensitive data. And ConnectWise in particular being one that's used by a lot of service providers professionally. Like the difference being in the past, if they made you do go to my PC or VNC, both of those are very consumer. Like no professional organization really uses VNC. Uh, go to my PC, at least the victim might think, well, anyone can do that. Why would GeekWire just be using this off-the-shelf thing? So having it be ConnectWise and, and more professional versions of these tools definitely helps trick people. And then the whole not even trying to install it, just running it as a self-contained executable is another Absolutely. good trick. Yeah, yeah. Man. Yep. So when it comes to tips, uh, they did provide some guidance at the end of the report. First off, they recommended implementing countermeasures to block phishing messages to the best of your ability. Think tools like you know, DNS Watch that can potentially neuter some of these links. Uh, audit remote access tools on your network to identify currently used and or authorized uh, RMM software. So basically, if you've got the visibility on your machines through your EPP or EDR software, uh, see what's already installed and if someone potentially has fallen victim to this or maybe they're just installing sketchy remote access software that's outside of your policy. Um, look for RMM software loaded only in memory. Allow list the RMM programs you use and obviously blocking all the ones you don't use then. Uh, require RMM solutions to be used only from within your network or over approved remote access solutions which ties into blocking all inbound or outbound connections on common RMM ports. And then also just user training on how to spot phishing. Because at the end of the day, this was a social engineering attack, tricking users into installing software. Um, I definitely like all those technical tips and, and the training ones, but blocking phishing. <laughs> yeah, you, you it's can easy. Do just that. do it. You, you can do... you. Can, 
if there's some phishing that is spam to everyone in the world, but to me, this was clearly one that went to more direct people. So this leans more to spear, spear and targeting. And there's no solution that will block the, I mean, maybe if they used malware or a well-known link, you can catch those, but how is any email security solution, even machine learning ones, uh, going to really catch a good spearfish? So I, I, I don't know. The phone call aspect you, of it would be difficult to identify and block. I think that you would still have some success with like URL filtering. Tools. Oh, for sure. URL filtering can prevent the victim. And maybe if there's a pre-click email solution that takes into account the URL they see. But uh, I, I think a well-written email, especially if it's posting a phone number to call back, is, is not going to be caught. How far do you think we are from the likes of large language models like ChatGPT <laughs> being tied into this? You know the Paired answer with there. Uh, because doesn't Google have their like Google? I can't remember the name of it. The human voice replication bit too. So yeah. that maybe at some point it's just all going to be robots. It's going to us. start to be AI as well. Actually, this is a good time. Me and Mark just got done recording our second, even bigger live audience four four three podcast, where we introduce or where we uh, interview a bunch of panelists in front of a watch guard sales and marketing team, and in some of the questions, Chat GPT came up. So we may not release that for a bit just because it takes a little more editing, but know that that's coming. And if you want to hear more about how Chat GPT might be used for phishing and spear phishing, there's a fun discussion during the Q and A. Yeah, absolutely. But in this case, though, like it's still it boils down to phishing training is going to be one of your best bets for spot. Like you need to have absolutely. your users not falling for this. And Do all the technical stuff you've been doing, but make sure to train people because spearfish will get through. Uh, the links and attachments may sometimes or very often be caught, but a lot of spearfish nowadays don't even rely on the link or attachment. They rely on tricking your user into doing something like calling, emailing, or texting back. Yep, and still you can use this as an opportunity. And I think it's what CISA wanted to highlight was use it as an opportunity to proactively review your network for the RMM software installed on there and other remote access software, and maybe start tightening down the hatches a bit on what you're allowing to be installed on user machines. So I think you might be surprised at the amount of act, well, you probably wouldn't be surprised because it's pretty strong access, but the amount of access that these tools give, like a lot of them set up local administrator accounts during the installation process. If you allow your users to install uh, applications and they've got local admin, it can reduce your ability to see what user accounts are doing on there. And obviously, like if they don't have good practices for like personal remote access software, someone could just hop right in with a bad password. Yeah, I don't think people will be surprised about how much access RMM has, but what they might be surprised if they haven't been scanning their network is how many remote access things might be running. Don't forget, users can be using this, besides the threat actor tricking your user into installing something, and a user with a computer on-premise might install something like VNC or even ConnectWise and then use their home computer to connect back to their computer office computer, for instance, and work on it. And uh, so take the opportunity to find that too, because you really don't want that happening uh, unless you know and approve of it and it has MFA. So very powerful software, and there might be more of it on your network, even not from threat actors, but even bad policy usage by your own users. So worth looking into. 100%. 
Now, so moving on to the last story of the week, uh, we will continue with CISA on this one. As said, they just published a new guide that they called Protecting Our Future, Partnering to Safeguard K-12 Organizations from Cybersecurity Threats. It's a 29-page document where they basically took feedback from stakeholder engagements and then created recommendations for K-12 education on combating cyber threats. And they started it because of the, what was it, 2021 uh, K-12 Cybersecurity Act which directed CISA to study cybersecurity risks facing the industry and then develop these voluntary guidelines. Um, so I figured there's got to be at least a couple folks in the education space that listen to this podcast. Um, and if not, prepare to be educated on some of the uh, concerns that industry is facing and some of the key things that they can do with their limited resources uh, to combat it. So standouts to me, uh, they noted 29% of uh, ISAC, so again, those information sharing centers, uh, ISAC's K-12 student district members reported being victims of a, of a cyber incident. So just over a quarter have already suffered a cyber incident, which, man, my gut tells me quite a bit more than that, have suffered one and potentially just don't know about it yet. Um, most commonly targeting K-12 are student data breaches, so data stealing data of the students, which can include everything from social security numbers, obviously addresses, emails, phone numbers, anything you could potentially want for identity theft. Uh, data breaches stealing teacher and community member data. Uh, ransomware is obviously a big one. Business email compromise is still a big one. And then the stuff you would expect from students themselves, like DDoS attacks and website defacement and online class and school meeting invasions uh, were the key threats that schools were talking about, which makes sense. Those last three for sure, I'm willing to bet skew more towards student-initiated than Russian threat actor-initiated, but it's good that they note it. Uh, so the report itself, it's split kind of in half, where the first half they talk about the feedback they gained and a few key areas of concerns from individuals in the K through 12 vertical. And the second half, they go into some specific findings and recommendations for those individuals. So starting with the concerns, the first one was a lack of cybersecurity professionals in K through 12 institutions. So most districts don't have full-time cybersecurity personnel if they have full-time IT staff at all. Um, and even if they have security professionals, they may not get the full leadership support to implement critical controls. That makes sense as a, I mean, school districts are resource constrained everywhere, not just in IT, but classroom as well too. So that's very much believable. I was gonna say, besides this, I, one of the big things was just lack of budget. I mean, when we start to get to the findings and recommendations, the reason they'll be really high level, like do these for you prioritize these is because schools simply don't have budget. And I think some of the, the pages around sending you to this 29 page document talked about them not having any, you know, expecting schools to have less budget for cybersecurity and yet obviously being a targeted vector. So how do you secure it that way? And yeah. I, so I think it's interesting how the findings are really kind of trying to spill to the top the most important things to do with budget and resources and issue. But anyways, what are, what were the other? Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say budget is more than just not being able to afford, you know, the most expensive SIM for your school. It's also not having the resources to, to deploy anything you even had approved in the first yeah. place. No or people, resources no to manage it after the fact. Yeah. 
And I think we've found even in our support days, Mark, that most schools, it's, you know, depending on the size of the school, often the, the IT guy is the, the person that happens to teach the computers in the yep. school or something. So it's that's the level we're talking here, not even just an IT guy with no security expertise, but in some cases, uh, not much at all, especially when we're talking elementary. And so, yeah. So I think it, the the one interesting theme to me was how do you give security advice to this, you know, when you have a vertical that's highly targeted, but very resource constrained, like even more so than an average company. Yep. And we will get into that because they had some good recommendations. Uh, but second concern was a desire for clear and actionable guidance and plans ready for adoption, as well as concerns about simplicity of controls. So specifically, they had concerns about controls that are burdensome to implement or have timelines that do not address urgent risks. And they stress the need to keep school IT systems operational while at the same time taking steps to prevent potential cyber attacks. This also makes sense. Like you just said, like it's may, may not it's certainly not going to be some of cyber experience in this. It may not even be an IT person. It may be the computer lab teacher that has to deploy this. And if they're trying to set up some complex control to try and keep the, the school or district safe, there's a higher chance of that not succeeding if the complexity is there. Uh, so concern number three, uh, recommendations around governance should be prioritized in the role of centralizing governments within a statewide body. Um, so basically they're saying uh, they can get a lot of information on here's the 500 things that you should be doing, but not a lot of details on here are the most important ones you should be knocking out first. Like being realistic, you may only get to 10 of the 500. What are those 10 that I should do to get the most bang for my investment? Uh, they also had concerns about lack of oversight and accountability in cybersecurity affecting K through 12. So they said jurisdiction between states, cybersecurity agency or agencies and state education agencies is not well articulated. Uh, they pointed out the compliance audits, while they may point out like risks that a school district is facing, they don't necessarily drive large scale change or accountability. And there were concerns with vendor management and contract accountability with a lack of standards and minimal requirements for K through 12 vendors and suppliers. So basically like, they're saying state agencies, like uh, individual states already have typically a CISO for the state. They potentially have a security department, bigger or smaller, depending on how much funding they have. But the interaction between that and the Department of Education and then the individual school districts is there's no real like who owns what. And if even if the state's trying to be proactive and like audit their schools, yeah, they print out a report, but who's actually going to go action on that one? So that makes sense too. Um, so now moving on though, so the findings were, I thought pretty well articulated. Um, they did a good job of breaking out like an executive summary with just like bullet points and then very thorough recommendations for each individual recommendation uh, within this report. First one was, so they noted one finding was with limited resources, K through 12 institutions can take a small number of steps to significantly reduce cyber risk. They recommend invest in the most impactful security measures and build towards a mature cybersecurity plan with three specific steps. Implement the highest priority security controls, which we'll get into in just a second. Uh, prioritize near-term investment in alignment with the full list of CISA's cross-sector cybersecurity program goals, or CPGs, which I think we talked about 
probably a couple months ago now when those first came out. Uh, remember, those were like taking a framework and then boiling it down to the practical how to explain this to an actual human being uh, that CISA put out for all critical infrastructure sectors. And then finally, over the long term, develop a unique cybersecurity plan that leverages the NIST cybersecurity framework. Um, now, pausing for a second. So one of the bullet points was just implement highest priority security controls. And as you remember from a second ago, like schools probably don't know what those are. And so they asked for specific guidance. And CISA did come out and give, uh, I think it's six specific recommendations in order. So yeah. first, we should talk about that. But I just wanted to pause to say this is a, a slight digression. But a while back, I talked about Australia's essential aid. And to me, uh, you know, back then I was saying same thing applies to small businesses. We don't care what framework you go to, but I don't know. CIS has like 18 controls. Australia's big one has something like 31 controls. But the idea of essential eight are what are the bare minimum top controls that will block 80% of attacks. And I think, you know, I think many small businesses out there have the same challenges as these schools, these K through 12, uh, you know, education centers. So, you know, no one can... You, you may not get to all the security Mark and I talks about, but think about these top controls. Think about the biggest bang for the buck, the thing that will give you the most protection for the most common ways folks get in. And I think that's what you're about to hear. Yeah. So in order, uh, first implement MFA, which is cyber whatever goal, CPG 1.3. Uh, makes sense. Like that'll stop the overwhelming majority of authentication attacks. Won't stop everything because remember you can social engineer around it. But it's but that's, that's way sophisticated and uncommon, yes. uh, even though it is uh, something we've shown before and is something seriously to understand. But like this is why we had the prediction that if you don't have MFA, you'll get hacked if, uh, either a year or two ago. And I've always thought the past three years, this is the best bang for your buck for protection. And it's funny how so few people deploy it organization wide. And yes, I would say just about every organization probably has MFA somewhere. But to me, the only way to use this is every single user period from logging into their computer first thing in the morning to all of the SaaS apps, hopefully through single sign-on so you avoid friction. So I just wanted to super support this. I mean, we can 90% of attacks are usually done by some sort of stolen or lost credentials uh, were somehow involved in most breaches depending on if you look at the verizon data breach report or trend micro both have data on this so what's the best way to avoid these identity-based attacks make sure you have the strongest identity validation which you're not doing without mfa so absolutely agree with this i think we've been spouting it and predicting oh you'd be hacked if you didn't have it for a while want to see everyone deploy it to every user in their organization every user not just the privileged ones because the reality is like even if your english middle middle school english teacher hopefully doesn't have domain and admin access across your entire district network like that is still a foothold that the threat actor can then use to conduct phishing attacks against other more privileged employees or use malware-based attacks like um, Mimikatz to go yank credentials from the admin that just logged into that machine 
and use those. Yeah, absolutely. And meanwhile, we have every researcher that's ever done statistics on how much time or how many moves it takes to pivot from the lowest privileged user on the inside all the way to domain. I, I've never seen a situation where you, uh, where a pen testing group, a red team that got inside the the network with a, a valid employee credential, even if it was the lowest privileged user, didn't bounce to domain within a couple of steps and, and less than a day. And that's why if I were attacker, I wouldn't be directly targeting the, the top IT administrator. I would be targeting the receptionist uh, or, you know, not that, that that guy is bad, but just someone that doesn't have privilege. The IT guy is probably going to understand a bit more and be a harder target anyways. But if I can get that receptionist and she lives on inside the network, that's when I would start to look for the IT administrator. And that's when I would leverage things as simple as sending emails to their service desk from this user's profile that the administrator might take more seriously too. So lots you can do once you get inside, even with the lowest privilege account. And that's why your lowest privilege user should have MFA as well. Yep. So once you've finished implementing MFA, next is fix known security flaws, which is CPG 5.1. So basically just Patching. patch and vulnerability management. Yeah. yeah, this is patching. And we've said many times, while we want lots of fancy stuff to prevent attacks, and prevent the unknown, the truth is almost all attacks are the known. So just fix them and then you won't have to rely on the security controls quite as much. Yeah, like at a minimum, get on a regular cadence. Microsoft Patch Tuesday is a pretty good way to uh, stage your patches around. Adobe and Apple pretty much mirror it. So it's a good day for a lot of, you know, just uh, not just because Microsoft's there, but Adobe will release stuff too. So you might as well get it all when you can on that yep. day. And there are like tools you can use to help make sure you keep user workstations up to date, not just on the OS level, but on the application level as well, too, to make it really easy from a central yeah. location to take care of it. We should buzz market our own products. WatchGuardy PDR does have patch management modules that from an endpoint level can not just tell you the Windows and operating system software, but has a deep, deep database of just about any known Windows program you can install. So makes it easy for me and Mark to just look at a central console and see if uh, there's there's any folks out of date. And of course, you can tie that to server-based, uh, you know, more server-centric patch management software as well. Next up is perform and test backups, which is CPG 7.3. So yes, backing up is great, but making sure you've got a tested restoration plan too, so that you can recognize early on if something's broken or won't work during the restoration process as well too. Now, this is one where they do get into the weeds quite a bit because there are there's sufficient ways to do backups and then there's good ways to do backups where preferably multiple locations, at least one of them offline, uh, so that if you've got a network enabled ransomware variant, uh, you potentially have the capability of having a backup that is not impacted by it if it's able to proliferate across the network. Um, number four was minimize exposure to common attacks. CPG 2.1 and 5.4, uh, which is basically just uh, cyber hygiene, basic attack surface management. Uh, make sure that you've got good protections in place for the applications that you use. Don't expose things to the internet that don't need to be exposed, that sort of thing. Uh, number five was develop and exercise a cyber IR plan, which is CPG 7.2. 
this is where I feel like if you're developing and exercising a cyber IR plan in a school district, you're doing pretty good up to this point so far with your cybersecurity program. This does require a little bit of investment because uh, you need to at least be trained up on how to do one of these or bring in a firm to assist with it too. I feel like this is one where definitely a a state level government organization or CISA themselves have even offered to come in and help run this with organizations too if you're in critical infrastructure. So definitely engage outside help while you're pulling this together. And again, the whole point of it is to make sure that when the moment happens, you're not caught with your pants down and you've got an actual plan that you need to that you know to follow uh, to respond to the incident. And then finally, create a training and awareness campaign at all levels. So not just for users, but leadership as well too. Make sure everyone's trained up on how to spot those phishing messages that might bring in RMM software onto your machines. Um, and if you're at this point, you're going to have a relatively decent baseline. Like Corey said, you're going to be set up to block 80% of the attacks, which is probably way better than a lot of other organizations in the same vertical. Uh, so that was finding number one. Finding number two was many school districts struggle with insufficient IT resources and security uh, capacity. They recognize that uh, and actively address resource constraints. So Work with state planning committees to leverage state and local cybersecurity grant programs. Uh, utilize free and low-cost services to make near-term improvements on resource-constrained environments. So basically, you don't need to go out and buy you know, Splunk, as an example, when you can install an open-source sim to aggregate logs. Uh, you don't need to go buy the biggest bells and whistles for like an IDS when you can use an open-source one to deploy that in the organization. So utilize free or low-cost services. They've got lists for all of them that are appropriate for K-12 through as well in their report. And that can at least get you up and running with something that's better than nothing. It may not be what you ultimately want long-term, but any improvement is better than nothing in the world of cybersecurity. Um, expect and call for technology partners to enable strong security controls by default at no additional charge. This one's good. I like this one. Like Working with vendors and advocating that when it comes ship to your place and you go set it up, you shouldn't have to go waste six hours just trying to figure out how to turn on security services and get it up and running correctly. It should have, through the setup process, prompt you for strong password changes, prompt you for enabling MFA, and prompt and come with whatever security controls it has set up in a good baseline way that you can get up and running right out of the box. Uh, and then minimize the burden of security by migrating IT services to more secure cloud versions. And yes, moving to the cloud doesn't make it instantly more secure, but it does at least help in some situations. By the way, this is interesting to me because the government was the one that was dragging their feet the, the longest for the cloud. But what I think they're referring to is the FedRAMP version of the cloud. I think the difference is here is that like you say, the cloud can be very secure. It all depends on either if the provider you use, if they're managing or you are using the settings that are available good enough, uh, do it. But the one extra benefit that education might have is they probably can connect to like the government version of the cloud, which is a separate tenant than all the public ones typically if it's FedRAMP. I don't know if that's the case for all education, but it's just funny seeing the government starting to really push the cloud uh, when they used to kind of try to drag their feet the most going themselves to it. I guess now that they have their FedRAMP tenants, be they're happy. Yep. Uh, let's see. And finding number three, 
No K-12 entity can single-handedly identify and prioritize emerging threats and risks. So focus on collaboration and information sharing. I say join relevant collaboration groups like the MSI SAC, the K-12-6. Work with other information sharing organizations such as fusion centers, state school safety centers, and regional agencies. And build strong, enduring relationships with CISA and the FBI regional cybersecurity personnel. And this one feels like a no-brainer too. Like, if you have any IT staff, they're not going to know everything. So group up and tackle it. By together. the way, even if you had a security expert, like the a really top level one, even they won't know everything. Everyone should collaborate. You know, <laughs> as was said at the sales conference, one is none and two is one. You know, it takes collaboration to come up with great things. Uh, I will say the one cynical part of me is all of this sounds like great advice, but even that last one requires time, 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 you know, and if there's no dedicated security guy because there's or gal because there's no research or, or, or sorry, resource. And you're also now asking the IT guy to join. It's not just joining the relevant groups. It's communication, checking their forms, going to meetings, learning the latest. All of it takes time and money. So I think the most important stuff is if these schools can get grants and if the government will actually give people the resource they need in the uh, uh, government sector and, and education sector to be able to do this kind of advice. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if many schools, IT or security related folks know this very well. They just don't have enough people to enact it across all the schools or districts they manage. Yeah. And so it wasn't directly mentioned in a bullet point in the report, but one of the things that they recommended was so recognizing that some of the actual implementations and management will need to be handled by the district itself, but consolidate as much as you can outside the district at the state level, like work with the Department of Education. Maybe we're at a point where every state needs to have a CISO for the Department of Education as well, too, to kind of coordinate this across the entire state. And that alone will help facilitate information sharing within a state. And then you've got that multi-state ISAC where they can all work together across the whole dang country and start to spot, spot attack trends and notify each other before it's able to hit individual schools. Um, it's also a good opportunity for working with an MSP or MSSP. I, I would like to see more federal grants to help enable that type of interaction as well, too. Just recognizing like random school district in the middle of northern Texas does not justify having their own cybersecurity staff, but they still need security. We're still managing a lot of uh, student information and in a technically public owned institution. So maybe we need some more grants to help get them hooked up with an MSP or an MSSP to manage their security then. So this was just, I think, the first step of, uh, well, I guess not the first step, the first result of that 2022 requirement for CISA to uh, pull together these guidelines for K through 12. It is an interesting read. I think, Corey, like you pointed out, uh, a lot of it, if you are if you are a cybersecurity or just IT practitioner in K through 12, you're going to read this report and be like, yeah, duh for at least a decent amount of it. But part of the benefit is you can take this to leadership, be like, hey, this is what CISA is recommending. Here's the six things we can start off with that will protect us from a significant number of attacks and then go so from there. Give me money. Yeah, yeah. Use this as a justification for why you're asking for budget. So I'm pretty happy. I like that it feels like in the last couple of years, there's been a lot more focus on using CISA to kind of direct some of these, not just 
a framework and say have at it but like practical even if it is basic just practical guidance on how to implement cybersecurity in a good enough way yeah across CISA, fbi everyone in the government as far as inter cybersecurity goes i feel like they've greatly increased their both volume of communications which is good because really this type of education is how people get better and their partnerships so between that CISA has done lots of great communications lately and i seem to be doing a good at least uh from ivory tower level job I think all the, the action will be more execution, uh, whether or not, you know, these, these schools can get the resources they need to execute on this. But you gave some good tips on how. But hopefully this uh, gives IT practitioners in public education some ammo to go to leadership and get just some resources to implement some of the stuff they can. So at a minimum, there are grants out there that can help protect or help you acquire some of the technologies you'll need. And then, yeah, it is still a manner of getting the resources to actually deploy and manage them too. Either way, baby steps. Security isn't about being perfect right from the get-go. It's about doing what you can and then iterating and improving over time. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore, Corey is at SecAdept, and the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.